Islam and Revelation, an historic look at Protestant eschatological thought on the rise and fall of Islam. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. There is no copyright on this material, and we encourage you to reproduce it and pass it on to your friends. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at area code 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. The following excerpt is taken from a dissertation on the prophecies that have been fulfilled, are now fulfilling, or will hereafter be fulfilled, relative to the great period of 1260 years, the papal and Mohammedan apostasies, the tyrannical reign of Antichrist, or the infidel power and the Restoration of the Jews, two volumes, 1811, by George Faber. I am reading from volume 1, starting at page 194 to 212, as read by Leah Domes. Hence he prefers the interpretation of Sir Isaac and Newton, and supposes with them that the little horn is the Roman power, which first penetrated into the east by way of Macedon, one of the four horns or kingdoms of the Greek Empire. When Dr. Zouch made this objection, he certainly was not aware that it applies with equal force to his own system as to that which supposes Mohammedism to be the little horn. The Roman power sprung up no more within the territories of any of the four Greek horns at its first rise, then the religion of Mohammed. Consequently, if the one must not be esteemed the little horn because it originated in Arabia, neither must the other because it first arose in Italy. And, on the contrary, if the one may be esteemed the little horn because it became a power within the limits of the Hegel's empire, by the conquest of Macedon, so likewise may the other with equal propriety, because it became the power within the limits of the same empire by the conquest of Syria. The fact is, Dr. Zouch's objection is one of those which, by proving too much, prove nothing. A horn, in the language of prophecy, is, indifferently, said to spring from the head of a symbolical beast or empire, whether it be one of the kingdoms into which that empire has been divided by its own grandeurs, or whether it had been one of the kingdoms which had been formed out of the empire in question by the successful inroads of foreigners. 
Thus, the ten Gothic kingdoms of the Western Roman Empire, although founded by nations that did not spring out of the empire, but on the contrary invaded it, are represented by Daniel as being the ten horns of the fourth beast, no less than the four Greek monarchies, which literally sprung out of the Macedonian Empire, are described by him as being the four horns of the he-goat. Yet if Dr. Zouch's objection be valid, not one of the ten Gothic kingdoms must be esteemed a horn of the fourth beast, because not one of them, so far as its primitive origin is concerned, arose out of the Roman Empire, any more than either the Roman Empire itself or Mohammedism, whichever of these powers be intended by the little horn of the he-goat, arose out of the Greek Empire. The 1260 days must be dated from the time when the saints were given into the hand of the papal horn, or the year 606. Consequently, the rise of Mohammedism, or the setting up of the desolating transgression, must be dated from the same era. But Mohammedism itself did not become a horn of the he-goat, or a spiritual power within the limits of the Greek Empire, till the Saracens invaded Syria. Dr. Zouch further objects to the long period of time which intervened between the downfall of the four Greek kingdoms and the rise of Mohammedism, conceiving that if the little horn had been designed to symbolize that apostasy, some of the intermediate events would have been noticed by the prophet. This objection appears to me very unreasonable. Daniel had already recapitulated the whole of Nebuchadnezzar's dream in his vision of the four beasts for the evident purpose of introducing the little horn of the fourth beast, which had not been noticed in the dream of the Babylonian prince. He now recapitulates the history of the second and third empires for the similar evident purpose of introducing the little horn of the he-goat, which answers to the third beast of the preceding vision. Had he therefore again recapitulated the conquests of the Romans, he would not only have introduced much superfluous matter, but would have involved his whole prophecy in confusion. For in that case, we should have been led erroneously to imagine that both the little horns sprung out of the western part of the empire, instead of what is now abundantly manifest, the one out of the western part, and the other out of the eastern part, or the original body of the third beast. Accordingly, we find in the following vision that Daniel does there actually recapitulate a part of the Roman history because he wishes to conduct us to the tyrannical reign of the atheistical king, who, like the papal horn, was to arise not in the east but in the west. See Daniel 11:30-45. In order then, I conceive, to preserve that perspicuity which is so necessary for the right understanding of his prophecies, Daniel here simply tells us that some time after the downfall of the four Greek kingdoms, the little horn should make its appearance in the late territories of one of them. The precise time, however, when the power which was destined to become this little horn should arise, he does not mention, leaving us to collect it from certain numbers which he has given us. From these numbers the time has been collected, and that time, as we have seen, 
in the very year in which Mohammed commenced his imposture. Lastly, Dr. Zouch objects that the king typified by the little horn was to be a king of a fierce countenance, whereas Mohammed, according to the traditions of his companions, was distinguished for his commanding presence, his majestic aspect, his piercing eye, his gracious smile, his countenance that painted every sensation of the soul, his gestures that enforced each expression of the tongue. To this objection, the answer is sufficiently obvious. Daniel is not describing the aspect of a man, but the nature of a religion. The antitype of the little horn is not an individual king, but a spiritual kingdom. And this spiritual kingdom, or religion, is to remain 1260 years, and at that length to be broken without hand. Consequently, it cannot be any single individual. Whatever then the countenance of Mohammed may have been, his sanguinary superstition, avowedly propagated by the sword, may, with the utmost propriety, he describe as a kingdom fierce of countenance. See Zouch on Prophecy, Chapter 8. End of footnote. 2. The little horn was first to be small and afterwards to be great in the southern, eastern, and northern. Footnote. The expression toward the pleasant land, when joined with the preceding phrase toward the south and toward the east, and when considered with a reference to the native country of Mohammed, evidently means toward the north. It is a mode of speech perfectly familiar in the Hebrew language. Thus, from the relative position of the Mediterranean Sea to Palestine, the Jews were wont to express the West by the phrase toward the sea. End of footnote. Direction. The religion of Mohammed was originally small in the number of its proselytes, but it soon waxed exceeding great, and that in the very line marked out by the prophecy. Its conquest extended southward over the peninsula of Arabia, eastward over Persia, and in after ages over Hindostan, and northward over Palestine, Asia Minor, and Greece. Some conquests it likewise made westward, but they were neither so permanent nor so considerable as its other acquisitions. Spain soon threw off its tyranny, and the piratical states of Barbary are not worthy to be mentioned with the spiritual sovereignty of Greece, Persia, Syria, Asia Minor, Hindustan, and Arabia. Hence the prophet truly remarks that the principal theater of its greatness should be the north, the south, and the east. Footnote. Under the last of the Omniads, the Arabian Empire extended 200 days' journey from east to west, from the confines of Tartary and India to the shores of the Atlantic Ocean. And if we retrench the sleeve of the robe, as it is styled by their writers, the long and narrow province of Africa, that is to say, the petty western conquest of the Mohammedan religion, which were not worthy to be mentioned along with its empire in the east, the north, and the south, and which are therefore left unnoticed by the prophet. The solid and compact dominion, 
from Fulgana to Aden, from Tarsus to Surat, will spread on every side to the measure of four or five months of the march of a caravan. History of the Decline and Fall, Volume 9, page 501. To this vast territory, which acknowledged Mohammed as the prophet of God, the Turks afterwards added Greece and Asia Minor in the north. The progress of the Saracens in the very direction marked out by the prophet is even verbally noticed by Mr. Gibbon. After detailing the history of their conquest of Arabia in the south, he observes, to the north of Syria they passed Mount Taurus and reduced to their obedience the province of Cilicia, with its capital Tarsus, the ancient monument of the Assyrian kings. Beyond a second ridge of the same mountains, they spread the flame of war rather than the light of religion as far as the shores of the Euxine and the neighborhood of Constantinople. To the east they advanced to the banks and sources of the Euphrates and Tigris. The long-disputed barrier of Rome and Persia was forever confounded. The walls of Edessa and Amida of Dara and Nisibis, which had resisted the arms and engines of Sapor or Nishurvan, were leveled in the dust, and the holy city of Abgarus might vainly produce the epistle of the image of Christ to an unbelieving conqueror. To the west the Syrian kingdom is bounded by the sea. In this direction, Mr. Gibbon notices only the piratical excursions of the Saracens. History of Decline, Volume 9, page 309, 423, and 424. End of footnote. 3. The king was to arise when the transgressors were come to the full. The Christian churches began very early to degenerate from their primitive purity and to apostatize in the manner predicted by Paul. The apostasy, however, was long confined to individuals, nor did the transgressors come to the full until it was publicly authorized and upheld by the spiritual head of the Catholic Church. But in the year 606, when the saints were delivered into the hand of the papal horn, the apostasy became an embodied system. For immediately afterwards, idolatry was openly and shamelessly established by the sovereign pontiff. In this year then, when the 1260 days commenced, the transgressors came to the full. Consequently, in this year, we must look for the rise of the king. Accordingly, the Mohammedan apostasy commenced in the east in the selfsame year that the Pope was constituted Bishop of Bishops and Supreme Head of the Church in the West, insomuch that Dr. Prido, struck with this wonderful chronological coincidence, could not refrain from exclaiming that Antichrist seemed at that time to have set both his feet upon Christendom together, the one in the east, the other in the west. Footnote. Prito's Life of Mohammed, page 16. End of footnote. 4. The king was moreover to be fierce of countenance and a teacher of dark sentences. That is to say, the little horn was to be a spiritual power upheld by force of arms 
It was to be a religion, not mild and gentle like that of the Lamb, but partaking of the fierce and unrelenting nature of the dragon. The word, which is here rendered dark sentences, primarily means enigmas, and as the oriental enigmas were usually couched in sublime and poetical language, it is used in scripture to express the sublime spiritual enigmas or mysteries of religion. Thus the psalmist, when about to treat of the deep mysteries of redemption, and the wonders of the resurrection summons all the inhabitants of the world to give him their earnest attention. My mouth, saith he, shall speak of wisdom, and the meditation of my heart shall be of understanding. I will incline mine ear to a parable. I will open my dark sentence upon the harp. Footnote Psalm 49, 3 and 4 End of footnote the dark sentences then, or spiritual enigmas, taught by the little horn, are manifestly that pretended revelation of Mohammed, the Quran, a work written in a kindred language to that of the Jewish scriptures, and replete with those poetical, metaphorical turns of expression so peculiarly grateful to an oriental ear. The substance of the Quran, according to Muhammad or his disciples, is uncreated and eternal, subsisting in the essence of the deity and inscribed with a pen of light on the table of his everlasting decrees. In the spirit of enthusiasm or vanity, the prophet rests the truth of his mission on the merit of his book, audaciously challenges both men and angels to imitate the beauties of a single page, and presumes to assert that God alone could dictate this incomparable performance. This argument is most powerfully addressed to a devout Arabian, whose mind is attuned to faith and rapture, whose ear is delighted by the music of sounds, and whose ignorance is incapable of comparing the productions of human genius. The harmony and copiousness of style will not reach, in aversion, the European infidel. He will peruse with impatience the endless incoherent rhapsody of fable and precept and declamation, which seldom excites a sentiment or an idea which sometimes crawls in the dust and is sometimes lost in the clouds. The divine attributes exalt the fancy of the Arabian missionary, but his loftiest strains must yield to the sublime simplicity of the book of Job, composed in a remote age, in the same country, and in the same language. Footnote. History of Decline and Fall, Volume 9, page 267, 268, and 269. End of footnote. Such are the dark sentences of the Quran and the religion which it inculcates, may well be described as fierce of countenance, when the avowed maxim of its founder was to use no other engine of conversion than the sword. 3. And it waxed great even against the host of heaven, and it cast some of the host and of the stars to the ground, and stamped upon them. Yea, it magnified itself even against the prince of the host, and by it the daily sacrifice was taken away, and the place of his, the prince's sanctuary, was cast down. 
and the host was given up unto it by reason of transgression against the daily sacrifice. And it cast down the truth to the ground, and it practiced and prospered. Of this passage, the following explanation is given by the angel. And the power of the king shall be mighty, but not by his own power. And he shall destroy wonderfully, and shall prosper, and practice, and shall destroy the mighty and the people of the holy ones. And through his policy also, he shall cause craft to prosper in his hand, and he shall magnify himself in his heart, and he shall destroy many, while in negligent security. He shall also stand up against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without hand. 1. The little horn was to cast the stars of heaven to the ground and stamp upon them. The religion of Mohammed has professedly set itself up against the symbolical host and stars of heaven, or the bishops and pastors of the Christian church, numbers of whom in the eastern part of the empire it cast down to the ground, compelling them either to apostatize or stamping them, as it were, under its feet, with all the fury of brutal fanaticism. 2. The little horn was to magnify itself against the prince of the host and to cast down the truth to the ground. Accordingly, Mohammedism did openly magnify its founder against the divine author of the Christian religion. The impostor allowed Jesus, the son of Mary, to be a prophet, but he maintained that he himself was a greater prophet and that the Quran was destined to supersede the gospel. He taught his infatuated disciples that the piety of Moses and of Christ rejoiced in the assurance of a future prophet, more illustrious than themselves, and that the evangelic promise of the paraclete, or Holy Ghost, was prefigured in the name and accomplished in the person of Mohammed, the greatest and last of the apostles of God. Footnote. History of the Decline and Fall, Volume 9, page 267. End of footnote. Thus destroying the mighty host of the rival nations of Rome and Persia, murdering and harassing the now degenerate people of the Holy Ones, taking away the daily sacrifice of prayer and praise, polluting the spiritual sanctuary. Footnote. Mr. Keat, although he supposes the little horn to relate in part to Mohammedism, very inconsistently takes the sanctuary in a literal sense, and thence argues that Jerusalem is designated as the principal scene or object of the tyranny of this horn. He is led into this era by his system of double interpretations of the same prophecy, for he adds, first during the Jewish and lastly during the Christian dispensation. The little horn, therefore, according to his system, first polluted the sanctuary in the days of Antiochus, secondly in the time of the Romans, thirdly under Mohammed, and lastly will pollute it by the arms of professed infidels. Now though the literal sanctuary was polluted by Antiochus and the Romans, neither of whom, by the way, can have the slightest connection with the little horn. It certainly was not by Mohammed, and for this very substantial reason, in his days, it was no longer in existence. 
As for Jerusalem, it was no more the principal scene of Mohammedan triumphs than Persia, Greece, Arabia, or Egypt. Nor has the sanctuary, which was to be polluted by the little horn, any reference whatsoever to the temple. See History of the Interpretation, Volume 1, page 350, 351, and 359. The infidel power or Antichrist will indeed plant the curtains of his pavilions between the seas and the glorious holy mountain at the era of the restoration of the Jews. But this exploit is certainly not foretold in the present prophecy, which treats of quite a different power. End of footnote. And magnifying itself, even against the prince of princes, the little horn of Mohammedism cast down the truth to the ground and waxed exceeding great. 3. The strength of the little horn was to be mighty, but not by its own strength. The power here spoken of being a spiritual one, its strength will mean the commanding influence which religion exerts over the soul of man. Thus the mighty efficacy of the gospel is described by the apostle as quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Footnote. Hebrews 4.12. End of footnote. The gospel accordingly, when preached to the heathen world, showed by its successful progress that it was not only mighty, but mighty by its own divine strength. It required not the assistance of the temporal arm, but, on the contrary, prevailed over all the persecutions that could be raised against it. Hence, its illustrious founder is prophetically addressed by the psalmist, Gird thy sword upon thy thigh, O most mighty, with thy glory and thy majesty, and in thy majesty ride prosperously because of truth and meekness and righteousness, and thy right hand shall teach thee terrible things. Footnote. Psalm 45, 3 and 4. End of footnote. And hence the propagation of the gospel in the primitive ages is described by St. John in the same sublime strain of allegory. And I saw and behold a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow. And a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. Footnote. Revelation 6.2 I cannot but wonder how Newton could think of applying this symbolical description to the conquest of the Flavian family. In order that the prophecies of John may be consistent with themselves, the rider upon the white horse mentioned in this passage must be the same as the rider upon the white horse celebrated in the 19th chapter of the Apocalypse, who is then declared to be the personal word of God. Newton objects that no good reason can be given for representing the church in triumph and glory at a period when she was most grievously persecuted and afflicted. But this objection cannot be esteemed of any weight when we consider that the victories of the church being purely of a spiritual nature have been usually the greatest when her temporal estate has been the most depressed. Accordingly, when the church was established by Constantine in great temporal prosperity, the Spirit of God set so high by this outwardly glorious event 
that it represents it as the whole pen with only a little hope. Daniel 11.34 Because, as Newton himself observes, though it added much to the temporal prosperity, yet it contributed little to the spiritual graces and virtues of Christians. Mr. Mead justly supposes the rider upon the white horse to mean the Messiah. Contrary Apocalypse in Sigal 1 and a footnote. But Mohammedism, strong as it afterwards became, and great as was the influence which it possessed over the minds of its votaries, was not mighty by its own natural strength. It avowedly relied not upon the still small voice of reason and argument and evidence, not upon the louder claims of miracles, which could neither be denied nor accounted for on physical principles, not upon its own intrinsic worth or purity, its own divine unassisted strength, but upon the enthusiastic valor of its adherents, the strength of the Saracenic sword. Ten years Mohammed persevered in the exercise of his mission, depending upon the strength of his religion alone. During that period the superstition, which has since overspread the Eastern world, advanced with a slow and painful progress only within the walls of Mecca. For as yet the pseudo-prophet disclaimed the use of religious violence. Footnote. History of the Decline and Fall, Volume 9, page 285 and 286. End of footnote. In one day, 3,000 were added to the church by a single sermon of Peter, and in ten years after the Passion of the Messiah. Christianity had been planted in Samaria. Footnote. Acts 8, 5. End of footnote. Phoenicia, Cyprus, Antioch. Footnote. Acts 11, 19, and Acts 13. End of footnote. And Ethiopia. Acts 8, 27. End of footnote. Exclusive of Judea and Galilee. Mohammed, finding that he was likely to make but little progress if he relied upon nothing but the strength of his cause, after he had made himself Prince of Medina, assumed in his new revelations a fiercer and more sanguinary tone, which proves that his former moderation was the effect of weakness. The means of persuasion had been tried. The season of forbearance was elapsed and he was now commanded to propagate his religion by the sword, to destroy the monuments of idolatry, and, without regarding the sanctity of days or months, to pursue the unbelieving nations of the earth. In the first months of his reign, he practiced the lessons of holy warfare and displayed his white banner before the gates of Medina. The martial apostle fought in person at nine battles or sieges, and fifty enterprises of war were achieved in ten years by himself or his lieutenants. Hence we may satisfactorily account for the greater rapidity with which his religion spread during these second ten years than during the former ten years when he confined himself merely to preaching. The sword, said he to his intrepid followers, is the key of heaven and of hell. 
a drop of bloodshed in the cause of God, a night spent in arms, is of more avail than two months of fasting and prayer. Whosoever falls in battle, his sins are forgiven. At the day of judgment, his wounds shall be resplendent as vermilion and odoriferous as musk. And the loss of his limbs shall be supplied by the wings of angels and cherubim. Footnote. History of Decline and Fall. End of footnote. Thus was the power of Mohammedism mighty, but not like the gospel, by its own power. Thus did it destroy wonderfully and prosper and practice. Footnote. I prefer this interpretation of the passage, His power shall be mighty, but not by his own power, to that adopted by Mr. Kitt. As the kingdoms of the West, says he, gave their power to the beast or the papal antichrist, so have the kingdoms of the East given theirs to the Mohammedan antichrist. But I can see this is not all that is here meant. The dragon gave his power to the beast and the angel of the bottomless pit, led on the Saracenic locusts. And thus the angel may be understood to say, The power of this horn shall be not merely that which is common to the conquerors of the east, such as the he-goat or four beasts in the former vision. It is to be directed and supported by superhuman art and strength, which shall enable it to destroy wonderfully, to prosper and practice. History of the Interpretation, Volume 1, page 356 and 357. The anger of the bottomless pit, who was the king of the Saracenic locusts, is not, as Mr. Kett supposes, the devil, but the prophet himself, whose descriptive name Apollyon, or the destroyer, as Newton justly observes, agrees perfectly well with Mohammed and the Caliphs, his successors who were the authors of all those horrid wars and desolations, and who openly taught and professed that their religion was to be propagated and established by the sword. The exact coincidence, even of expression, between Daniel and John is well worthy of our notice. Daniel describes the power represented by the little horn as destroying wonderfully, as destroying the mighty, and the people of the holy ones, as destroying many in negligent security. John styles the author of Mohammedism Apollyon or the Destroyer. Mr. Kett does elsewhere justly consider Apollyon to be a descriptive name of Mohammed and his successors. Volume 2, page 72, 73, and 74, which renders his former mistake the more singular. End of footnote. 4. Another mark of the power symbolized by the little horn is that through his policy he shall cause craft to prosper in the land. Whence we must conclude that the power thus symbolized was to be no less crafty than warlike. Let us hear the voice of history. In the exercise of political government, Mohammed was compelled to abate of the stern rigor of fanaticism to comply in some measure with the prejudices and passions of his followers, and to employ even the vices of mankind as the instruments of their salvation. 
the use of fraud and perfidy, of cruelty and injustice, were of ten subservient to the propagation of the faith. And Mohammed commanded or approved the assassination of the Jews and idolaters who had escaped from the field of battle. By the repetition of such acts, the character of Mohammed must have been gradually stained, and the influence of such pernicious habits would be poorly compensated by the practice of the personal and social virtues which are necessary to maintain the reputation of a prophet among his secretaries and friends. Of his last year's ambition was the ruling passion, and a politician will suspect that he secretly smiled, the victorious impostor, at the enthusiasm of his youth and the credulity of his proselytes. In the support of truth, the arts of fraud and fiction may be deemed less criminal, and he would have started at the foulness of the means had he not been satisfied of the importance and justice of the end. Footnote. History of the Decline and Fall, Volume 9, page 322 and 323. End of footnote. Such is the unwilling confession even of his apologist, Mr. Gibbon. Nor was perfidy the exclusive characteristic of Mohammed alone. His example in this respect has been but too faithful copied by his numerous votaries. It is scarcely credible how far the littleness of pride is carried by the port in all their transactions with the Christian princes. To support their faith and to extend their empire are the only law of nations which they acknowledge. Their treaties amount only to a temporary remission of that implacable enmity with which their religion inspires them against everything not Mohammedan. They consider the most solemn treaties in the light of a truce, which they are at liberty to break, whenever they can more effectually serve the cause of Mohammed. In this they are much assisted by the nature of the Arabic language, which they mix with the Turkish in their public acts, and which, by the various application of its terms, literal and metaphorical, enables them to give whatever interpretation they please to the contract. Footnote. Eaton Survey of Turkish Empire, page 106, cited by Kett. End of footnote. In a word, lust, arrogance, covetousness, and the most exquisite hypocrisy complete their character. Footnote. Mondrell's Travels, page 149, cited by Kett. End of footnote. 5. Another characteristic which the angel gives us of the little horn is that he should destroy many while in a state of negligent security. This peculiarity is remarkably exemplified in the whole progress of the Saracenic arms. The birth of Mohammed was fortunately placed in the most degenerate and disorderly period of the Persians, the Romans, and the barbarians of Europe. Footnote. This declaration of Mr. Gibbon affords another proof that the power symbolized by the Mohammedan little horn arose when the transgressors were come to the full, though I conceive the commencement of the 1260 days to be peculiarly alluded to by that expression. 
and a footnote. The empires of Trajan and even of Constantine or Charlemagne would have repelled the assault of the naked Saracens and the torrent of fanaticism might have been obscurely lost in the sands of Arabia. In the victorious days of the Roman Republic, it had been the aim of the Senate to confine their consuls and legions to a single war and completely to suppress a first enemy before they provoked the hostilities of a second. These timid maxims of policy were disdained by the magnanimity or enthusiasm of the Arabian Caliphs. With the same vigor and success they invaded the successors of Augustus and those of Artaxerxes, and the rival monarchies at the same instant became the prey of an enemy whom they had been so long accustomed to despise. Footnote. History of Decline and Fall, Volume 9, page 360 and 361. End of footnote. Let us first observe the effects of this fatal and presumptuous security in the case of Persia. The Battle of Cadesia determined the fate of that empire. Three days did the encounter continue. On the last morning, the clangor of arms was re-echoed to the tent of Rustam, who, far unlike the ancient hero of his name, was gently reclining in a cool and tranquil shade amidst the baggage of his camp and the train of mules that were laden with gold and silver. On the sound of danger, he started from his couch, but his flight was overtaken by a valiant Arab who caught him by the foot, struck off his head, hoisted it on a lance, and instantly returning to the field of battle, carried slaughter and dismay among the thickest ranks of the Persians. After the defeat of Cadesia, a country intersected by rivers and canals might have opposed an insuperable barrier to the victorious cavalry, and the walls of Tessaphon or Medane, which had restricted the battering rams of the Romans, would not have yielded to the darts of the Saracens. But the flying Persians were overcome by the belief that the last day of their religion and empire was at hand. The strongest posts were abandoned by treachery or cowardice, and the king, with a part of his family and treasures, escaped to the Halwyn at the foot of the Median hills. In the third month after the battle, said, the lieutenant of Omar passed the Tigris without opposition. The capital was taken by assault, and the disorderly resistance of the people gave a keener edge to the sabers of the Moslems. Footnote. History of Decline and Fall, Volume 9, page 367, 368, and 369. End of footnote. Let us next consider the effects of the same impolitic security in the case of the rival empire of Constantinople. About four years after the triumphs of the Persian War, footnote, namely the triumphs of Heraclius over Chosroes, and a footnote. The repose of Heraclius and the empire was again disturbed by a new enemy, the power of whose religion was more strongly felt than it was clearly understood by the Christians of the East. In his palace of Constantinople or Antioch, 
He was awakened by the invasions of Syria, the loss of Basra, and the danger of Damascus. An army of 70,000 veterans, or new levies, was assembled at Hems, or Hemesa, under the command of his general, Warden. During two successive engagements, the temperate firmness of Khaled sustained the darts of the enemy and the murmurs of his troops. At length, when the spirits and quivers of the adverse line were almost exhausted, Khaled gave the signal of onslaught and victory. The remains of the imperial army fled to Antioch or Caesarea or Damascus, and the death of 450 Muslims was compensated by the opinion that they had sent to hell about 50,000 of the infidels. Footnote. History of Decline and Fall. End of footnote. In the life of Heraclius, the glories of the Persian War are clouded on either hand by the disgrace and weakness of his more early and his latter days. When the successors of Mohammed unsheathed the sword of war and religion, he was astonished at the boundless prospect of toil and danger. His nature was indolent, nor could the infirm or frigid age of the emperor be kindled to a second effort. The sense of shame and the opportunities of the Syrians prevented his hasty departure from the scene of action. But the hero was no more, and the loss of Damascus and Jerusalem, the bloody fields of Azendine and Yarmouk, may be imputed in some degree to the absence or misconduct of the sovereign. Most of the smaller conquests of the Saracens were, in a similar manner, achieved by surprise. For his camp in Palestine, Amro had surprised or anticipated the cliff's leave for the invasion of Egypt. The magnanimous Omar trusted in his god and his sword, which had shaken the thrones of Khosros and Caesar. But when he compared the slender force of the Moslems with the greatness of the enterprise, he condemned his own rashness and listened to his timid companions. The pride and the greatness of Pharaoh were familiar to the readers of the Koran, and the tenfold repetition of prodigies had been scarcely sufficient to effect not the victory but the flight of 600,000 of the children of Israel. The cities of Egypt were many and populous. Their architecture was strong and solid. The Nile with its numerous branches was alone an insuperable barrier, and the granary of the imperial city would be obstinately defended by the Roman powers. In this perplexity, the commander of the faithful resigned himself to the decision of chance, or, in his opinion, of providence. At the head of only 4,000 Arabs, the intrepid Amro had marched away from his station of Gaza, when he was overtaken by the messenger of Omar. If you are still in Syria, said the ambiguous mandate, retreat without delay. But if, at the receipt of this epistle, you have already reached the frontiers of Egypt, advance with confidence, and depend on the succor of God and of your brethren. The experience, perhaps, the secret intelligence of Amro had taught him to suspect the mutability of courts, and he continued his march till his tents were unquestionably pitched 
on Egyptian ground. He then assembled his officers, broke the seal, perused the epistle, gravely inquired the name and situation of the place, and declared his ready obedience to the commands of the cliff. After a siege of thirty days, he took possession of Pharma, or Pelusium, and that key of Egypt, as it has been justly named, unlocked the entrance of the country as far as the ruins of Helopolis and the neighborhood of the modern Cairo. Footnote. History of Decline and Fall, Volume 9, page 427, 428, and 429. End of footnote. The conquest of the African province soon followed that of Egypt. At the head of 40,000 Muslims, Abdallah advanced from Egypt into the unknown countries of the West. The sands of Barca might be impervious to a Roman legion, but the Arabs were attended by their faithful camels, and the natives of the desert beheld without terror the familiar aspect of the soil and climate. After a painful march, they pitched their tents before the walls of Tripoli, a maritime city in which the name, the wealth, and the inhabitants of the province had gradually centered and which now maintains the third rank among the states of Barbary. A reinforcement of Greeks was surprised and cut in pieces on the seashore, but the fortifications of Tripoli resisted the first assaults, and the Saracens were tempted by the approach of the perfect Gregory to relinquish the labors of the siege for the perils and the hopes of a decisive action. To the courage and discretion of Zoar, the lieutenant of the cliff entrusted the execution of his own stratagem, which inclined the long-disputed balance in favor of the Saracens. Supplying by activity and artifice the deficiency of members, a part of their forces lay concealed in their tents, while the remainder prolonged an irregular skirmish with the enemy, till the sun was high in the heavens. On both sides they retired with fainting steps, their horses were unbridled, their armor was laid aside, and the hostile nations prepared, or seemed to prepare, for the refreshment of the evening, and the encounter of the ensuing day. On a sudden the charge was sounded. The Arabian camp poured forth a swarm of fresh and intrepid warriors, and the long line of the Greeks and Africans were surprised, assaulted, overturned, by new squadrons of the faithful, who to the eye of fanaticism might appear as a band of angels descending from the sky. After the fall of this opulent city, the provincials and barbarians implored on all sides the mercy of the conqueror. The western conquests of the Saracens were suspended nearly twenty years till their dissensions were composed by the establishment of the house of Amia. The first lieutenant of Moaya required a just renown, subdued an important city, defeated an army of 30,000 Greeks, swept away fourscore thousand captives, and enriched with their spoils the bold adventurers of Syria and Egypt. But the title of conqueror of Africa is more justly due to his successor, Akba. The fearless Akba plunged into the heart of the country, 
traversed the wilderness in which his successors erected the splendid capitals of Fez and Morocco, and at length penetrated to the verge of the Atlantic and the Great Desert. The river Sus descends from the western sides of Mount Atlas, fertilizes like the Nile the adjacent soil, and falls into the sea at a moderate distance from the Canary or Fortunate Islands. Its banks were inhabited by the last of the Moors, a race of savages without laws or discipline or religion. They were astonished by the strange and irresistible terrors of the Oriental arms, and as they possessed neither gold nor silver, the richest spoil was the beauty of the female captives, some of whom were afterwards sold for a thousand pieces of gold. Footnote. History of Decline and Fall. Volume 9, page 450 to 458. The same fatality attended the Gothic kingdom of Spain. Like most of the other conquests of the Saracens, it fell into their hands by indulging in the hollow security of peaceful carelessness. The perfidious Count Julian, revealed in his epistles or in a personal interview with the Arab general Musa, the wealth and nakedness of his country, the weakness of an unpopular prince, and the degeneracy of an effeminate people. The Goths were no longer the victorious barbarians who had humbled the pride of Rome, despoiled the queen of nations, and penetrated from the Danube to the Atlantic Ocean. Secluded from the world by the Pyrenean Mountains, the successors of Alaric, had slumbered in a long peace. The walls of the cities were moldered into dust. The youth had abandoned the exercise of arms, and the presumption of their ancient renown would expose them in a field of battle to the first assault of the invaders. The ambitious Saracen was fired by the ease and importance of the attempt, but the execution was delayed till he had consulted the commander of the faithful and his messenger returned with the permission of Walid to annex the unknown kingdoms of the West to the religion and throne of the caliphs. In his residence of Tangier, Musa, with secrecy and caution, continued his correspondence and hastened his preparations. But the remorse of the conspirators was soothed by the fallacious assurance that he should content himself with the glory and spoil without aspiring to establish the Moslems beyond the sea that separates Africa from Europe. Musa, having at length invaded Spain, its Gothic sovereign and nobility too late perceived the magnitude of the danger. In the neighborhood of Cadiz, the town of Zeres has been illustrated by the encounter which determined the fate of the kingdom. The stream of the Godelite, which falls into the bay, divided the two camps and marked the advancing and retreating skirmishes of three successive and bloody days. On the fourth day, the two armies joined a more serious and decisive issue, but Alaric would have blushed at the sight of his unworthy successor, sustaining on his head a diadem of pearls encumbered with a flowing robe of gold and silken embroidery and reclining on the litter or car of ivory drawn by two white mules. 
Footnote. The resemblance between the effeminate and unwarlike habiliments of the Spanish Roderick and the Persian Rustin cannot but have been observed by the reader. Each was destroyed in negligent security. End of footnote. This battle terminated in the complete victory of the Saracens, and the remains of the Gothic army were scattered or destroyed in the flight and pursuit of the three following days. Footnote. History of Decline and Fall. End of footnote. Thus has the Mohammedan little whore destroyed many while slumbering in a state of false security, and thus accurately has the prophecy of Daniel been fulfilled. 6. The only remaining peculiarity which the angel ascribes to this tyrannical superstition is still future. It is destined to be broken without hand. This event is to take place at the close of the 2200 years, which, as we have seen, synchronizes with the termination of the 1260 years, when the spiritual sanctuary will begin to be cleansed from the abominations of the twofold apostasy. In the prediction of Daniel, Mohammedism alone is spoken of. Its two principal supporters, the Saracens and the Turks, are not discriminated from each other. A general history of the superstition from its commencement to its termination is given, without descending to particularize the nations by which it should be successively patronized. In the Revelation of John, this deficiency is amply supplied, and we are furnished with two distinct and accurate paintings, both of Saracenic locusts under their exterminating leader and of the Euphradian horsemen of the four Turkish sultanies. Footnote, Revelation 9. End of footnote. The sovereignty of Arabia was lost long before the expiration of the 2200 years for the extent and rapidity of conquest. The colonies of the nation were scattered over the east and the west, and their blood was mingled with the blood of their converts and captives. After the reign of the three caliphs, the throne was transported from Medina to the valley of Damascus and the banks of the Tigris. The holy cities were violated by the impious war. Arabia was ruled by the rod of a subject, perhaps of a stranger and the Bedouins of the desert, awakening from their dream of dominion, resumed their old and solitary independence. Footnote. History of Decline and Fall, Volume 9, page 353. End of footnote. The Turks at present, jointly with the Persians, occupy the place and empire of the Saracens, and the little horn of Mohammedism has branched out into the rival sects of the Shites and the Sunnites. It appears, however, from the Apocalypse that the Ottoman power, like its predecessor, the Saracenic Caliphate, will be annihilated previous to the complete expiration of the 2200 and the 1260 years, and consequently previous to the downfall of the Roman beast under his last head, and of his little horn, the papal false prophet. The mystic waters of the Euphrates are to be completely dried up under the sixth vial, 
and by their exhaustion are to prepare a way for the kings from the east and for the gathering together of the grand confederacy of the beast, the false prophet, and the kings of the Latin earth, to their destruction at Megiddo. But the confederacy itself is not to be destroyed till the seventh vial is poured out until the 1260 years are fully accomplished. Footnote. Compare Revelation 9, 14 and 15. 16, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 with 16, 17 through 21 and 19, 11 through 21. These matters will be discussed more fully hereafter. End of footnote. The downfall of the Ottoman Empire, the prognostics of which are even now sufficiently visible, will greatly weaken the spiritual horn of Mohammedism, but certainly not altogether break its strength. The false religion of the Arabian impostor will still be professed in Persia, Hindustan, and Barbary nor will it be finally broken without hand till the 2200 years shall have expired. What precise idea we are to annex to this phrase can only be positively determined by the event. Footnote. The expression is ambiguous. If conjecture be allowable in such a matter, it may either mean that Mohammedism shall be, as it were, practically confuted and silenced, by the second advent of Christ, against whom the impostor had presumed to stand up, compare Daniel 2, 34, 35, 44, and 45. Or it may mean that it shall gradually fall away to nothing by the desertion of its votaries, and thus die a sort of natural death. The exhaustion of the Euphrates will no doubt greatly weaken it, and it is a remarkable circumstance even in these eventful times, though sect has lately made its appearance in the very country of the false Arabian prophet, which threatens no less than the destruction of his religion itself. The wild bees are infidels, and their numbers are daily increasing. Their opinions have been maintained in secret nearly sixty years, and they at length find themselves strong enough to take up arms in defense of them. It is said that they occupy the greatest part of the country which extends from Medina to the Euphrates. Their last exploit, of which we have recently received an account, shows their decided hostility to Mohammedism in a very striking point of view. Having reinforced their army from the desert and having overwhelmed the whole adjacent country, they suddenly assaulted and took the city of Medina with infinite bloodshed and devastation. They set fire to it in various places, destroyed the mosques after having ransacked them of their shrines and treasures, and completely demolished the tomb of the prophet. Some thousands of females of the first rank were carried off by the besiegers into the desert, with a number of the principal male inhabitants. A troop of camels was also sent away with jewels and other treasure to an immense amount. See Morning Post, February 22, 1806. Should this sect continue to increase, Mohammedism must fall eventually by mere force of opinion. 
If its votaries continue gradually to abandon it, we may easily conceive how, at the time of the end, it will be broken without hand. The reader will, of course, view the whole that has been said on this point in the light of mere conjecture. End of footnote. This, however, we assuredly know that the eastern little horn, like its western fellow, will be forever broken at the termination of that period. Concerning what is future, we cannot venture to go beyond the express declarations of Scripture, but of that which is past, we may speak with confidence and precision. We may see then that the little horn of the he goat or Macedonian Empire answers in every particular that has hitherto been accomplished, chronological as well as circumstantial, to the successful posture of Mohammed. We have seen that only one particular yet remains unaccomplished, and that even that has already begun to be fulfilled. And we have further seen that although the character of the little horn agrees in some particulars with those of Antiochus Epiphanes, the Romans, and the power of infidelity, yet it entirely disagrees with them and others. The result, therefore, of the whole inquiry must be this, that the prophet designed to symbolize by the little horn of Mohammedism and nothing but Mohammedism. End of quote. The following excerpt on Islam and Revelation is taken from a dissertation on the prophecies that have been fulfilled, are now fulfilling, or will hereafter be fulfilled, relative to the great period of 1260 years, the papal and Mohammedan apostasies, the tyrannical reign of Antichrist, or the infidel power, and the restoration of the Jews. Volume 2, pages 269-288 to 288. Appendix when the first edition of this dissertation was published, I had not had an opportunity of perusing the recently printed work of Archdeacon Woodhouse on the Apocalypse, but it would be unpardonable, considering the plan which I have adopted, to suffer a second edition to make its appearance without noticing it. The thanks of every biblical student are due to the learned author for his very clear and convincing Dissertation on the Divine Origin of the Apocalypse, and likewise for many valuable remarks and much sound criticism contained in his notes on the book. I feel myself peculiarly gratified and interested at finding several of my own positions maintained and established by a writer with whom I have not the honor of being acquainted, and whose work I had not read at the time when my own was published. Thus we are both agreed that Mohammedism constitutes one half of a grand apostasy from the purity of Christianity. Footnote. The position that Mohammedism is a Christian apostasy is so ably treated by the archdeacon that I cannot refrain from strengthening what I have already said on the subject with his quotations and arguments. Mohammed did not pretend to deliver any new religion, but to revive the old one. He allowed both the Old and New Testaments, and that both Moses and Jesus were prophets sent from God. Predo's Life of Mohammed, page 18 and 19. That Jesus, son of Mary, 
is the word and a spirit sent from God, a redeemer of all that believe in him. Sales Quran, page 19, 30, and 65. Oakley's History of Saracens, 2. Mohammed represents himself as the paraclete or comforter sent by Jesus Christ. John 16, 7. Quran, page 165. So in Mohammed's ascent to heaven, as invented in the Quran, while the patriarchs and prophets confess their inferiority to him, by entreating his prayers in the seventh heaven, he sees Jesus, whose superiority the false prophet acknowledges by commending himself to his prayers. Sales Quran, page 17. Credo's Life of Mohammed, page 55. Faith in the divine books is a necessary article of the Mohammedan creed, and among these is the gospel given to Isaac or Jesus, which they assert to be corrupted by the Christians. If any Jew is willing to become a Mohammedan, he must first believe in Christ, and this question is asked of him. Dost thou believe that Christ was born of a virgin by the blast, i.e. inspiration, of God, and that he was the last of the Jewish prophets? If he answers in the affirmative, he is made a Mohammedan. Reland on Mohammed, Preface 25.11 Mohammed arose to establish a new religion, which came pretty near the Jewish, and was not entirely different from that of several sects of Christians, which got him a great many followers. Leibniz Letter, 1706 the impostor Mohammed confessed that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, that he was the word of God sent from heaven, the spirit of God declared by the miracles of the gospel, the prophet of God whose office it was to deliver the gospel and teach the way of truth, who is to come to judgment and to destroy Antichrist and convert the Jews. Thus also he taught that the gospel of Christ and the law of Moses and all the prophets are to be believed and thus he was better inclined to the Christians than to the Jews. Spanham Introduction Ad Historium Section 7, page 609 Mohammedism began as a Christian heresy, acknowledging Christ for a prophet, a greater than Moses, born of a virgin, the word of God. Rakot's Ottoman Empire, page 138 Sale asserts that Mohammedan religion to be not only a Christian heresy, but an improvement upon the very corrupt idolatrous system of the Jews and Christians of those times. Prelim, page 15. Joseph Mead affirms that the Mohammedans are nearer to Christianity than many of the ancient heresies, the Corinthians, Gnostics, and Manichees. Works, page 645. Whatever good is to be found in the Mohammedan religion, and some good doctrines and precepts there undeniably are in it, is in no small measure owing to Christianity. For Mohammedism is a borrowed system, made up for the most part of Judaism and Christianity, and if it be considered in the most favorable view, might possibly be accounted a sort of Christian heresy. If the gospel had never been preached, it may be questioned whether Mohammedism would have existed. Dr. Jordan's first charge. The Muslims are already a sort of heterodox Christians, 
They are Christians if Locke reasons justly because they firmly believe the immaculate conception, divine character, and miracles of the Messiah. But they are heterodox in denying vehemently his character of son and his equality as God with the Father, of whose unity and attributes they entertain and express the most awful ideas while they consider our doctrine as perfect blasphemy and insist that our copies of the scriptures have been corrupted both by Jews and Christians. Sir William Jones in Asiatic Researches, Volume 1, page 63. These are such testimonies as have occurred to me in no very extensive course of reading. They are derived from authors who, for the most part, enjoyed favorable opportunities of examining the Mohammedan tenets, and they exhibit that religion as rising upon the basis of true religion corrupted even like the papal to serve the purposes of a worldly and diabolical tyranny. In the Mohammedan religion are these articles all evidently derived from the Christian and constituting in it a great superiority above anything that paganism or mere philosophy have been able to produce. The belief of the existence of one all-wise, all-good, all-powerful God, of the immorality of the soul, of future rewards and punishments to be distributed by Jesus, of the acceptance of prayer, of self-humiliation, of almsgiving, of the obligation to morality in almost all its branches. Take from Mohammedism one article in which it differs from all religious generally admitted to be Christian, the belief of Mohammed's divine mission and Lola will then be found in it, which may not be discovered in the profession of many acknowledged Christians. Nay, perhaps it may appear that the creeds of two bodies of Christians will supply everything which is to be found in Mohammedism, accepting belief in the pretended prophet of Mecca. On the whole, when we consider the origin of Mohammedism and its near affinity to corrupted Christianity, when we reflect also on the amazing extent of this superstitious do domination which occupies nearly as large a portion of the globe as that possessed by Christians, comprising vast regions in ancient Greece and Asia Minor, in Syria, in Persia, in the Indies, in Tartary, in Egypt and Africa, which were once Christian, we shall readily admit that, if not a Christian heresy, is at least a Christian apostasy. Apocalypse translated, page 365 to 370. End of footnote. That the apocalyptic great city denotes not merely the town of Rome, but a corrupt communion. Footnote, page 293, 301, 412, and 418. End of footnote. That the holy city is not the literal Jerusalem, but the Christian Church. Footnote, page 286. End of footnote. That the first beast of the Apocalypse is not the papacy, but the Roman Empire. Page 329 to 338. And 422 to 432. End of footnote. That the deadly wound of this beast denotes his conversion to Christianity under Constantine, and that his revival means his relapsing into idolatry. Footnote, page 336, 345, 426, 428, and 436. End of footnote. 
that the little horn of Daniel's fourth beast cannot be the same as the first apocalyptic beast. In other words, that it cannot be the same as the beast himself, of which it is only a member, as some commentators have singularly supposed, but that it is the same as the second apocalyptic beast or the false prophet. Footnote, page 352 to 356. End of footnote. For the deadly wound and revival of a first apocalyptic beast is enigmatically described by the phrase was and is not, and yet is. Footnote, page 426 to 428. The archdeacon argues very forcibly against those who with need would ascribe the fulfillment of this mysterious phrase to the age in which the vision was delivered. These words of the angel describing the beast, it was and is not and yet is, appear to me in no wise applicable to the tyranny seated at Rome at the time of the vision when the angel spake them. This was a time of the emperor Domitian when a cruel persecution raged against the church when John himself was actually suffering banishment in Patmos for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Such a time can in no wise agree with the representation that the beast was and is not. It is therefore probable that the time in which the beast is said to have been and not to be, and yet to be, is the time when he ariseth again after his wound to exercise dominion under the direction of the harlot. This time was not arrived when John saw the vision in Patmos, but though future in this sense, it was present in another, as belonging to the vision then under exhibition. For the beast was then present in exhibition before John, and in the act of reascending to power. This will appear more probable to those who read forward from this passage to the end of the 8th verse where the admiration of the inhabitants of the earth is spoken of as yet future. And yet this admiration is fixed upon this same object, the beast which was, and is not, and yet is. End of footnote. That the time of the end denotes the expiration of the 1260 years, that the apocalyptic dragon cannot mean pagan Rome, but must typify the devil. Footnote. This point is excellently discussed by the archdeacon on consulting the writings of the commentators most approved in this country. I find that by the dragon is generally understood the pagan and persecuting power of imperial Rome, but I trust a few observations will show the fallacy of this notion. Where an interpretation is expressly given in the vision as in chapter 1, 20, verse 6 and 9, 17.7. That interpretation must be used as a key to the mystery in preference to all interpretations suggested by the imagination of man. Now in the ninth verse of this chapter, Revelation 12, such an interpretation is presented. The dragon is there expressly declared to be that ancient serpent called the devil, known by the name of Greek word in the Greek and of Satan in the Hebrew who deceived the whole world. Here are his names and his acknowledged character. No words can more completely express them. No Roman emperor nor succession of emperors can answer to this description. 
The same dragon appears again in chapter 22, and, as it were to prevent mistake, he is there described in the very same words. But this reappearance of the same dragon is in a very late period of the apocalyptic history, long after the expiration of the 1260 days or years, and even after the wild beast and false prophet who derive their power from the dragon during this period are come to their end. And the dragon is upon the scene long after these times, and continues in action even at the end of another long period, a period of a thousand years. He there pursues his ancient artifices, deceiving the nations even till his final catastrophe in chapter 20, 10, when the warfare of the church is finished. Can this dragon then be an emperor of Rome, or any race or dynasty of emperors? Can he be any other than that ancient and eternal enemy of the Christian church, who in this, as in all other scriptural accounts, is represented as the original contriver of all the mischief which shall befall it. In this drama he acts the same consistent part from beginning to end. He is introduced to early notice as warring against the church, chapter 2, 10, and 13. In the succeeding conflicts, the church is attacked by his agents, by the wild beast and false prophet, who derive their power from him, and at length he himself is described as leading the nations against the camp of the saints. Nothing appears more plain than the meaning of this symbol. The only appearances which may seem to favor the application of it to imperial Rome are the seven crowned heads and the ten horns of the dragon. But the seven mountains and ten horns of the latter Roman Empire are fitly attributed to Satan, because during the period of 1260 years and perhaps beyond it, he makes use of the Roman Empire, its capital city, and ten kings or kingdoms as the instruments of his successful attack on the Christian church. The dragon, therefore, appears to me as he did to Venerable Bede 11 centuries ago, to be Latin words, page 324 to 326, and a footnote. For the period of 1260 years, or at least a period of 1260 years, ought most probably to be dated from the year 606, footnote, page 360, the archdeacon thinks that there are more than one period of 1260 years, page 339 to 344. He by no means appears to me to prove his point. End of footnote. And consequently, that we are rapidly approaching to the catastrophe of the great apostatic drama. Footnote. Nearly all the more recent commentators on prophecy, with those writings I am acquainted, seem to agree in the belief that we cannot be far removed from the end of the 1260 years. The very phraseology used by the archdeacon most forcibly brought to my recollection a conversation which I once had on the subject with the late Horsley. His lordship avowed it to be his opinion that before the present century elapsed, the prophecies respecting the destruction of the Roman beast and the overthrow of the anti-Christian faction would be no longer a scale book. The days would come, says the archdeacon, and seem at no very great distance, 
The present century may perhaps disclose them, when the beast and false prophet being removed, and Babylon sunk forever, the devil, that ancient foe, shall be deprived of his wanted influence. Page 470. End of footnote. In these points, I have the satisfaction of finding myself supported by the authority of the archdeacon, but in various other matters, I am unable to agree with him. The first objections which I have to urge are of a general nature. Afterwards, I may descend to particulars. 1. My general objections are to the archdeacon's principle of applying the apocalyptic prophecies when carried to the length to which he carries it and to his system of arranging the apocalypse itself, on which a great part of his subsequent interpretations is founded. 1. He conceives the prophecies of the apocalypse to be applicable principally, if not solely, to the fates and fortunes of the Christian Church. Footnote. Preface. Page. 13. And. 14. End of footnote. Agreeably to this system, he interprets the six first seals and the four first trumpets as relating solely to ecclesiastical matters, and rejects at once both the usual chronological arrangement of them and the almost universal supposition that the four first trumpets predict the calamities brought upon the Roman Empire by the incursions of the various Gothic tribes and the final complete subversion of its western division. The principle is undoubtedly a just one if adopted with moderation, but the archdeacon does not advance any arguments in favor of carrying it to the length which he does that are at all satisfactory to my own mind. The affairs of the church, both Levitical and Christian, have been more or less connected from very early ages with empires and kingdoms hostile to the cause of true religion. Hence, although the church is the main end of prophecy, yet, circumstanced as it has always been, it seems nearly impossible to foretell the fates of the church without likewise foretelling the fates of the general powers connected with it. Nevertheless, the church being the ultimate scope of prophecy, we have no occasion to go into the wide field of universal history. Footnote, Abidum, page 15. And a footnote. To search for doubtful interpretations, we must confine ourselves to that portion of it which alone is connected with the Church. Accordingly, we find that no nations are particularized in prophecy excepting those with which the Church either has been or will be concerned. Moab, Edom, Amalek, Nineveh, Tyre, Egypt, the four great empires, and yet future confederacy, denominated Gog and Magog, are all very fully noticed, while the mighty monarchies of China and Hindustan are totally overlooked. Now when we must acknowledge such to be the case with the Old Testament, why are we to conclude that the apocalyptic predictions are framed upon a different principle? And since throughout the whole of the Revelation the Church is connected with Daniel's fourth beast or the Roman Empire, why are we to suppose that the Empire is never spoken of except when the ten-horned beast is specially introduced? That is to say, except during the period of the 1260 years.
Please continue listening on tape number four. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.